Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. All art, literature and music included, must come from your heart's blood. Art is your heart's blood. Some say that art began as decoration. <laughs> it's a lie. People told their stories in stone, on rock faces. They told of their awe of the gods. The religion of the time, by that I mean the spirit of the age, has to be reflected in art. It must be more than decoration. <laughs> oh, that's a word that has ruined a lot. I don't believe in any art that has not been forced into existence by a person's compulsion to open his heart. My art has its roots in certain reflections in which I sought some explanation of my disconnect to life. <laughs> Why wasn't I like everybody else? Why was I born? I'd never asked to be born. My anger and reflections over this became the undertones in my art. In fact, its strongest undertone. And without it, my art would have been quite different. It's an act of self-confession. Through it, I try to find a way of explaining to myself my life. I try to clarify my place in the world. So, a sort of egoistic act. But at the same time, I've always thought and felt that my art would be able to clarify for others what their lives are about, help them in their search for truth. It's better to paint a good picture that is unfinished than a poor one which is finished. Far too many people think they've finished a picture because they've squeezed in as many details as possible. <laughs> a single line can be a finished work. A streak of charcoal on a wall can be art of more value than many a fine painting in a gilded frame. Why don't you do like the others and paint nice small pictures for sale? said my milkman. Look after your cowshed, said I. There you know what you're talking about. I walked one evening along a road. On one side lay the town, and the fjord lay below me. Oh, I was tired and sick. I stood and looked out across the fjord. The sun went down. The clouds turned red as blood. I felt there was a scream throughout nature. I seemed to hear 
a scream. I painted this image, painted the clouds as if in blood, the colors screamed. This became the picture, scream, in my freeze of life. What we see in nature is not only what is visible to the eye, there are also inner pictures of the soul, pictures for the back of the eye. Back in the years when realism and impressionism were all the rage, there were times when I, while in a disturbed and fragmented state of mind, or in a happy mood, would come across a landscape I wanted to paint. Well, I'd get my easel, put it up, and paint a picture true to nature. It could be a decent picture, but it was never what I wanted to paint. I hadn't managed to paint it as it was when I saw it in my disturbed or my happy state of mind. This happened often, and I would erase what I'd painted. Search in my memory for that first image, that first impression, and try to recover it. Real art can only be created at the expense of peace and harmony. Oh, an end to all those paintings of interiors with people reading and women knitting. There should be people who are alive, who breathe and feel and suffer and love. I will paint a series of pictures like that. People will grasp that it is a holy undertaking and remove their hats as if they were in a church. Oh, a camera will never be able to replace the brush and palette. Not as long as the camera can't be used in heaven and hell. I try to paint life as it is lived, life full of love, hate, pain, and, first and foremost, anxiety. I try to give expression to my feelings of loneliness and anxiety, anxiety about life and about death. about the way people come together and about the way they fail to come together. Edvard Munch often had a difficult relationship with women. It usually followed a pattern. Once the first fascination had worn off, he felt himself suffocated and threatened. I was confronted with the mystery that is woman. I looked into an unknown world. My curiosity was woken. What did this look mean? What did this look know that I didn't know? When you're close to me, your eyes are as large as half the sky, 
and your hair has gold dust, and your mouth I don't see at all, only that you are smiling. When we stood face to face, and your eyes looked into mine, then it felt as if invisible threads went from your eyes to mine, and tied our hearts together. She massaged me on my forehead. What are you doing? I said. Are you hypnotizing me? The next thing I saw was her standing in the door of the studio. Tall, thin face, burning eyes, surrounded by a halo of golden hair. A peculiar smile on those tight lips. The head of a Medusa. An inexplicable feeling of anxiety swept over me. A shiver. Then she left, and I began on the dance of life. There's an old saying that I like, that love is like a flame, for it leaves only ashes behind. People are like planets, or like a star that rises from the dark and meets another star, bursts into flames for a moment, then disappears into the void again. That is the way men and women meet. Only the fewest meet in a great all-consuming fire in which both are wholly united. Yes, our relationship failed because you only considered your own love your own desires, your own will. That's why my own meagre vision of life had to yield. I don't mean to blame you. I can admire your strength as a woman and despise my weakness as a man. But things will never turn out well when a woman like you meets a man like me when two so opposing ways of understanding life meet. In all that time we were together, in every moment, when we lay together, when we visited the treasures of Florence, when we wandered together along a sunny path, when we sat together, and even in those moments which should bring the most intense pleasure, happiness only shone on me as if through a door that stood ajar a door that separated my dark cell from the dazzling ballroom of lived life. I came to you living and healthy. I leave you like a ghost. Edvard Munch was attracted to the bohemian lifestyle in capital cities, then repelled by it when he couldn't work and his heavy drinking affected his health. I have to get out of Oslo and find somewhere else to live. I'll stop over at Oskarstrand and then, perhaps, travel on down the south coast. 
It was a big mistake coming back to Oslo. I was, and still am, the big bad artist and bohemian in Oslo. I think parents use me to frighten their children. I tumble about where life is lived, but I know I have to return to the road by the edge of the cliff. That's my road, the one I have to walk. My legs give way, I want to fall, then back again to life and all the people, but I know I must return to the road by the edge of the cliff, because it's my road, until I fall into the abyss. Munch eventually found a place where he could both work and party. He bought a tiny house on the coast. Oh, it's lovely in Oskarstrand. I think it's the most beautiful of all the small fishing villages along the Oslo Fjord. It was really odd to be so much at ease with oneself in one's own home. No one needed to come and disturb me. It was my property. It hadn't cost much and wasn't much to look at, but it was mine. And out there in the garden were all my trees, my rocks and birds, my beach and my waves that broke against the rocks. Have you ever walked along the beach there and listened to the sea? Have you ever seen the evening light there as it is extinguished by night? I know of no other place that has such a beautiful twilight. <laughs> Isn't it sad that I've already painted everything there is to paint down there? To walk around Oskostrand is to stroll among my paintings. Oh, I'm gripped by such a desire to paint when I'm there. Munch had a dark anxiety about his health. I inherited two of the worst enemies of humanity, a disposition to consumption and insanity. From my birth they stood around my cot, those black angels of anxiety, sorrow, death. They stood by my side and followed me out when I went out to play, followed me in the spring sun and the splendour of summer. They stood by my side in the evening when I closed my eyes and threatened me with death, hell, eternal retribution, and I often woke in the dark of the night and stared in wild terror out in the room. Am I now in hell? Because of those dispositions I inherited from my father and mother, I decided as early as my teenage years never to marry. I felt it would be a criminal act if ever I were to enter into marriage. Nevertheless, I often feel that I can't get by without my anxiety about life. It's actually a necessity, and I don't want to do without it. 
I often feel that even the illness has been necessary. In periods between bouts of anxiety, I've felt like a ship, sailing in storm winds without a rudder, and ask myself, where am I heading? Where does this end? Oh, the drink got stronger. The nervous attacks more frequent. Occasionally I could become violent. Sometimes I got into fights with someone or other. In the middle of Monk's life, in 1908, he had a nervous breakdown and placed himself under medical supervision at a clinic in Copenhagen and basically cleaned up his act. I have sought medical help at a nerve sanatorium. I hope that here I will bring to an end all that unbearable inner anxiety from which I've suffered from day one. I should, of course, have done it a long time ago and saved myself and many others much unpleasantness. I've become a member of the order of Don't Touch Anything, Cigars Without Nicotine, Drink, without alcohol, women without poison, both the married and unmarried ones, I've become thoroughly boring. So now I haven't even got a grapevine to lean on, although, to be honest, it couldn't really be relied on for support. I do allow myself a little drop now and again. It's like balancing along the edge of a cliff. And champagne I still enjoy by pouring it into my friends. I get the reflected pleasure. Well, all right, I do take a glass of champagne if I have an appointment at the dentist. And then I let him wait. I just haven't got the heart to let him drill away that nice fuzzy feeling. I've never once in my life thought about money while painting a picture. Most people only started looking at my work with any interest after it started selling well. Until I was 45, if they caught sight of my pictures, people screamed, What the f... But in the end, I won, and money flowed in, after I had lived as a vagabond for getting on for 45 years. If I'd only thought of what I could sell, well, I would have gone, as did all the others, to the dogs, along with my art. Actually, it would be quite interesting to take a little talk with all those people who, for so many years, have looked at my pictures and have either laughed or shaken their heads in dismay. They just don't get it that there could be a tiny little bit of good sense in these momentary impressions, that a tree can be red or blue, that her face can be blue or green. They know it's all wrong, 
Since they were children they have known that leaves are green, the grass is green, and skin has a fine reddish hue. They just can't get their heads around it, that it is meant to be like that. No, it must be some humbug, some act of slovenly negligence, or, even more likely, mental derangement. They can't get into their heads that my paintings are made in earnest, in suffering. That they are the products of waking nights, that they have cost me my blood and my nerves. I saw how every person looked behind their masks, behind their smiling, phlegmatic, relaxed faces. I looked behind and saw that there was suffering in them all, constantly full of nervous anxiety, running around along a winding road whose only end was the grave. But then again there's all the people who arrange their lives as if death will never happen. Do they think they're gods or something who can't die? <laughs> I had a grandfather who was a ship's captain. And do you know what he said when he had to take to his bed and the doctor said that his days were at an end? He turned to the doctor and said, Well, goodness me, just think that that could happen to me. <laughs> just think that that could happen to me. Do you know, throughout his short life, Van Gogh never let his flame be extinguished. There was fire and fervour in his brush in the few years he was given to burn for his art. I thought about this and decided that I, with my longer life and with more money at my disposal, would, like him, not let my flame die out and with a burning brush paint until the last moment. Next time, 1940. King Hawkon stands tall against the Nazis. But for now, tusen tack för att du hörde på. Thanks for listening. <laughs>